Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Coming Back for More, Why Go to Church? It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 19th, 2014. Hildred Esterly was 14 years old when her father became the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Columbiana, Ohio. That was in 1917. My grandmother stayed in that church for 79 years. She was buried there in 1996 at the age of 93. That's a long life in one church. My father had a different experience. When I was in high school, he quit church. He never went back, and he never said why. I don't know this to be true, but I like to think that he lost his faith in the church as an institution, but not his faith in God or the gospel. There are lots of reasons to quit church. Good ones. Tops on most lists are hypocrisy, violence, and intolerance. In the name of God's love, we slaughtered Muslims, Jews, and Native Americans. We've humiliated and exploited slaves, women, and gays. Clerical pedophilia has devastated thousands of families. And whether Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant, fellow Christians have persecuted each other with sadistic cruelty. Others find church to be irrelevant, mediocre, boring, or perfunctory. Here's Annie Dillard in her essay, An Expedition to the Pole. Week after week, I was moved by the pitiableness of the bare linoleum-floored sacristy, which no flowers could cheer or soften, by the terrible singing I so loved, by the fatigued Bible readings, the lagging emptiness and dilution of the liturgy, the horrifying vacuity of the sermon, and by the fog of dreary senselessness pervading the whole, which existed alongside, and probably caused, the wonder of the fact that we came. We returned. We showed up. Week after week, we went through it. Christians have burned books, defended the dubious, supported pseudoscience, and avoided hard questions. In movies like Babette's Feast and Chocolat, church is portrayed as a place of moralistic, repressed people who never have any fun and who don't really believe what they say they do. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey tells the story of a prostitute who, when she was encouraged to go to church for help, responded, Church, why would I ever go there? I already feel terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. Still others leave church because of the sharp disconnect between our pious platitudes and our unanswered prayers, bitter disappointments, intellectual doubts, nagging questions, or life traumas. 
In her memoir, Leaving Church, Barbara Brown Taylor seems to have left church precisely in order to save her faith. One response to the church's failures is to long for a return to the golden age of the earliest believers. But the epistle for this week disabuses us of this romantic fallacy. According to Acts 18.11, Paul taught at Corinth for 18 months. He knew those people well. In his letters to the Corinthians, Paul addressed numerous ugly issues sectarian divisions in which both sides claim to be more spiritual than the other, boasting about incest, lawsuits between Christians, eating food that had been sacrificed to pagan idols, disarray in worship services, and predatory pseudo-preachers who masqueraded as super-apostles. So, the earliest churches were as troubled as our own today. But despite its many faults, and despite the futility of finding a pure or perfect church of any time or place, like Annie Dillard, I keep coming back for more church week after week. Why bother? First, I lower my expectations and expand my horizons. God's kingdom is not identical with the institutional church. At its best, the church mediates and points to God's kingdom. But God often works beyond and in spite of the church. Jesus compared God's kingdom to a fishnet that trawls the sea, catching both the good and the bad, or to wheat and tares that grow together. The inner circle of Jesus' followers included the traitor Judas and the betrayer Peter. There are many sheep without, wrote Augustine, and many wolves within. Furthermore, when I go to church, I experience much good. Couples working to hold their marriages together. Parishioners working for the good of public schools. Generosity to the poor hospital visitation of the sick, efforts at building community in an individualistic society, adoption of orphans, outreach to victims of HIV and AIDS, care for unwed teenage mothers who can't go home, building schools and hospitals in places that would otherwise never have them, and on and on. Focusing only on our faults distorts the true nature of the church. For all of the barbarities of Spanish colonization, there is a Bartholomew de la Casas, a Dominican priest who defended Native Americans for 50 years. For every impulse of greed, there's the selfless compassion of a Mother Teresa, whether known or unknown. For every craven acquiescence to political power, there's a Thomas More who spoke truth to, the, to those powers. Even though God's kingdom is bigger than the church, in some mysterious manner, the church is God's ordained human institution where he has chosen to work. The most famous and controversial expression of this comes from Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage in North Africa, in the third century. 
In his treatise on the unity of the church, he wrote that outside of the church, there's no salvation. And similarly, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. Protestants might cringe at these words, but both Calvin and Luther quoted them almost verbatim. So, I want to situate myself where God has said he is present. Flannery O'Connor said that she sat at her writing desk every morning so that she would be ready if and when an idea came to her. Likewise, in her memoir, Ordinary Time, Nancy Mears writes that she moved beyond her lapsed Catholic faith and returned to church, even though she still had many questions, so that she could, quote, prepare a space into which belief could flood. In other words, sometimes authentic faith results from, rather than precedes, fidelity to the church. Finally, I go to church out of a sense of my own needs. Being a Christian is one of the things in life that you can't do alone. During the Protestant Reformation, the Renaissance humanist Erasmus locked horns with Luther over their contrasting views of human nature. Erasmus rejected Luther's pessimistic views of the human will and natural reason. So, instead of joining the Reformers, he stayed put in his deeply troubled Catholic Church. Erasmus wrote, Therefore, I will put up with this church until I see a better one, and it will have to put up with me until I become better. So, I'm thankful for a church, however imperfect, that has welcomed my imperfect self, with my imperfect faith. We should never ignore the church's faults and failures. We should name them, own them, repent of them, and do what we can to correct them. Losing our illusions about church, disillusionment, is necessary and good. Thus did Luther, angry about the troubles of medieval Catholicism, offer what Diarmid McCulloch calls a spectacularly disloyal form of loyalty to the church when he demanded, demanded radical reform. One of our earliest Christian creeds is the old Roman creed from the late 2nd century. One of the fragments that predates it reads, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the resurrection of the flesh. Such early creeds served as baptismal confessions, as the basic instructional material for teaching, as a summary of our faith, and as affirmations used in public worship. The centrality of the Church in such a brief expression of faith serves as an important reminder. And so, with the Benedictine nun Joan Chittister, I aspire to be what she calls a loyal member of a dysfunctional family.
For books this week, I review a title by Jaron Lanier. It's called Who Owns the Future? New York, Simon & Schuster, 2013, 396 pages. In his previous book from 2010, You Are Not a Gadget, Jaron Lanier contrasted the lifeless world of pure information with the rich mystery of being human. He defended human intelligence, judgment, and artistic creativity against the pseudo-wisdom of computer algorithms, search engines, and aggregators. That book considered dozens of examples, but they were really just different aspects of a singular big mistake. The deep meaning of personhood being reduced by all illusions of bits. That book was important because Lanier has impeccable geek cred. In 2010, Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And the New York Times listed the book, You Are Not a Gadget, as one of the 10 best books of 2010. His newest book, Who Owns the Future, examines the impact of big data on the economy. He calls it a work of futuristic economics, or speculative advocacy. Today, only a tiny minority of people benefit from the information economy. Those who keep the new ledgers, the, the giant computing services that model you, spy on you, and predict your actions, turn your life activities into the greatest fortunes in history. Lanier calls these siren servers. Google, Facebook, Amazon, and credit agencies are only the most obvious examples. They collect, correlate, and sell massive amounts of data about us. A click on the New York Times, for example, activates over a dozen of these spy agencies. Just how many siren servers are out there? My sense, writes Lanier, is that there are many dozens of unavoidable ones, plus thousands of others that will touch your life on occasion. This economic model isn't sustainable, and it shrinks the economy. Lanier gives dozens of examples. As part of the old economy, Kodak employed 140,000 people and was worth $28 billion. Today, it's bankrupt, thanks in part to the disruptions of the digital economy. Instagram has digitalized photography, and when Facebook bought it in 2012 for a billion dollars, it employed only 13 people. Music and journalism have been similarly eviscerated, and in Lanier's view, every component in our economy is similarly threatened. Insurance, transportation, energy, manufacturing, healthcare, office work, education, and so on. Lanier proposes an alternate economic model. Since our personal data is the raw information of the siren servers, we should be paid for it, he says, through a universal micropayment system. He admits that the devil is in the details of his nanopayment proposal, and that he's a dreamer. 
One footnote in the book says that Lanier is working on an alternative to space elevators, which is a gigantic lighter-than-air railgun to launch spacecraft. So, his answers might be easy to criticize, but Lanier's analysis of the economic impact of big data is profound. And so, he concludes, This is a book of hypotheticals, speculation, advocacy, and the invocation of hope. So why not imagine a thousand top engineers deciding to work together to preserve middle classes in democracy, in information economies? Jaron Lanier, who owns the future? For movies this week, I review A Fierce Green Fire, The Battle for a Living Planet, from the year 2012. This polemical documentary is a good place to start for an overview of the environmental movement. It's divided into five acts, each of which is narrated by a prominent spokesperson. Robert Redford starts with conservation movement that focused on saving wild places like rivers, parks, and forests. Act 2 considers pollution and is narrated by Ashley Judd. It takes a long look at the Love Canal debacle. Van Jones narrates Act 3 about alternative and focuses on Greenpeace. In the fourth act about going global, Isabel Allende covers the rubber tappers in the Amazon and groups like the World Wildlife Fund. The last act five is narrated by Meryl Streep and looks at climate change, the mother of all environmental issues, and also at international treaties. If there's a unifying theme here, it's that ordinary citizens should take their own collective actions because governments and corporations never will without significant pressure. This movie was inspired by the 1993 book of the same title by Philip Shabkoff, described by Wiki as, quote, the definitive history and analysis of American environmentalism. Once again, the title of the movie, A Fierce Green Fire. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Scott Cairns. Cairns is an American poet, memoirist, librettist, and essayist. He's the Catherine Payne Middlebush Chair in English at the University of Missouri. This poem is called Eremite. The cave itself is pleasantly austere, with little clutter, nothing save a narrow slab, a threadbare woolen wrap, and in the chipped-out recess here, three sooty icons lit by oil lamp. Just beyond the dim cave's aperture, a blackened kettle rests among the coals, whereby each afternoon a grip of wild greens is boiled to a tender mess. The Eremite lies prostrate near two books, 
a gospel in the Syrians' collected prose, whose pages turn assisted by a breeze. Beside the thread of wood, smoke rising from the coals, no other motion takes the eye. The old man's face is pressed into the earth, his body stretched as if to reach ahead. The pot boils dry. He feeds on what we do not see and may be satisfied. The title of the poem, Eremite, by Scott Cairns. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 19th, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.